It is uh, amazing to come to a passage like this because I believe that we are now coming to the pinnacle of what Paul has been teaching us all the way back from chapter 5. We get into the riches of the study of God's grace towards us in Christ Jesus and the security of the believer. I think about life and there's one thing that is true that we all long for safety and security. You look around in the world around us, we do everything we can to find safety and security. And you, nowadays, in your vehicles, you have airbags in every different direction. You have airbags on the side and in front of you, just waiting for one in the back, you know, just so you're in a giant bubble if you were to get in an accident. I mean, obviously, we desire safety. We desire to preserve life and protect it. There is a sense that we long for a measure of security. I remember recently in our little neighborhood we were in, we had a break-in. Somebody had come through our neighborhood and just swept through and opened up every car door uh, possible and uh, looked through the cars and rummaged and took what they could and fled. And I thought it was rather funny, and the observation was the next morning watching the police walk from house to house, and it was almost every car was open. And in our list, we were texting one another as neighbors, and everybody had this kind of sense of security as if no danger was going to come into our area. We, we desire safety. We desire the protection. It's actually surprising, like for the next week, I actually locked my car doors, but now we're back to normal. They're open, so <laughs> you can break into my house anytime. Just open my car, hit the uh, garage door opener, walk right in. Actually, just go to the front door. I don't lock it, so <laughs> to my wife's dismay. We live in a time where we long for security. We expect it. And in the midst of that, Paul has been talking about the most important level of security, and that is the security of the believer, the riches of God's grace poured out upon us. If you look back at chapter 5, this starts the themes of God's grace. From chapter 3, in the middle of chapter 3, Paul describes the doctrine of justification and the riches of God's justifying grace upon the believer. And then chapter, he goes through chapter 3, justifies it from the Old Testament in chapter 4. And then these words at the beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. That is the position of every believer. They are exalting in the hope of the glory of God. They, are, they have peace with God. We have security. We have, through Jesus Christ, no fear of condemnation, as Romans 8 and verse 1 says. We don't fear the wrath of God. We don't fear the pending judgment of God. We don't fear God's uh, judgment of us because we have been covered in Christ. We have been secured in Christ. We know this eternally because the gospel promises the freedom uh, from this judgment and the anticipation of the glories to come. But that does not mean at all that we are going to be protected from dangers here on earth. There are many dangers. In the midst of those dangers, we recognize there are going to be difficulties that we face. Jesus warned us of these things. Paul warned us of his own personal struggles. Just to turn over to 2 Timothy, just to show you Paul's comments about this. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 10 and following. Paul says this to Timothy. 
preparing Timothy's heart for the struggles and the difficulties that he's going to face, he says this, Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Timothy, Timothy, walk in my example. If see and do all that you saw me do, you saw me teach, you teach. You saw me to conduct myself in a, in a way that was gentle and caring, you do that same thing. You saw me demonstrate love. You saw me endure through the difficulties. You saw me going through the hardness of life. You saw me persevering and not giving up and not losing hope. Timothy, you do that as well. And also, by the way, you saw me head into persecutions and sufferings wherever I went. Though the Lord delivered me, prepare yourself, Timothy, that you too, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you too are going to suffer. You're going to face difficulties. Even as we saw in our scripture reading this morning in John chapter 15, if the world hated Jesus Christ, they're going to hate us as we walk in God's ways. As we desire righteousness, as we desire holiness, as we desire the truth, there's going to be a burden on the heart of the wicked, the unrighteous. They have to discredit you because your deeds expose their deeds. They have to say there's something wrong with you if you're walking in righteousness because they aren't walking in that righteousness. They're walking in unrighteousness. That's why, as Jesus said again in John 15, verse 18, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul here to Timothy is saying to Timothy, I face sufferings just as Jesus promised those sufferings would come and you prepare yourself, Timothy, as well for those sufferings. You can turn back to Romans 8. Paul said to the, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, that he was persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. He knows the burdens and the suffering of pursuing righteousness. That's why he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.12, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. We continue to press in. We continue to move on and keep on going. We face persecutions and sufferings. We face difficulties all around us in this world. Sometimes that suffering comes from the outside and sometimes that suffering comes from the inside. Sometimes that suffering comes from people surrounding us, near to us. Whatever it is, we face these difficulties and when we face these difficulties, it's in those moments for us that oftentimes God feels distant. Where is he to deliver me from this suffering, this moment? Where is he to bring comfort to me? Why do we feel alone when we are being mistreated? Why are we tempted to fear in those moments when everything around you seems to be spinning out of control? What's the worst that's going to happen when we are facing those persecutions, when we're facing those sufferings, those difficulties? What is going to happen? Could have a loss of health, a loss of joy a loss of our personal life. We might face the loss of family, a loss of friends, a loss of possessions. Our hearts and minds are filled with fears of all the things we could potentially lose. So we're filled with fear. And we're not going to escape it in this world. Because again, as Jesus has said, if I am suffering, and if they persecuted me, they will also, you will suffer, you will face persecution persecutions you will face difficulties and we come to a point where our hearts are exposed in those moments we are exposed do we do we 
come to grips with our own fears, do we come to grips with our own dread, with our own anxiety in the moment? It's in the midst of those persecutions that what is being tested is this very issue right here, our security. And where do we find our security? Oftentimes, our security is found in our joy. Our security is found in our personal pleasure in the moment. Our security is found in our reputation. What do people think of me? Our security is found in some other earthly thing that we value so much that we fight to hold on to it and the Lord strips us of it. And we have to come back to a passage like this in Romans chapter 8 and set our minds on what God has promised. What God has given to us to protect us in the midst of these great difficulties. Otherwise, we're filled with fear, filled with a terror and dread. We start to feel like life is pressing in on us and crushing us. We feel like there's nowhere we can go. We can't listen to anything because the fears flood our heart and mind. They consume us. And when those fears are flooding our heart and mind because we're losing our security, we're losing the comfort and protection that we thought we had, that we had in earthly things around us, and this fear is coming upon us, we are tempted in a lot of ways. We're tempted to look for escape in pleasures, our earthly treasures. We're tempted to find blame, to point to something else. We make accusations. We, we start to look around and, and cast blame at others who's not delivering us from these things. Idols start warring within our own hearts because we look for something to deliver us. We want God to come, or we want something else to immediately deliver us, and we miss focusing on the promises of God. We turn our attention off of what God has said, off of believing His promises, and we turn our attention to something else, something tangible, something we can hold on to, something that we can control something that we can make a decision and it gives us a sense of confidence that we, we have everything under control even though the reality is we have nothing in control. The Lord is the one directing all things. The Lord is moving. And before you know it, when we're in those states of despair, when our heart's filled with threats against our own security, where however that should come upon us, before we know it, again, we start to question God's very goodness. We start to question what he's doing in this moment, that why he would allow it to be so hard, why he would allow the pressures to be so pressing upon us. And friends, I think it is in the midst of this that it's in those moments the expressions of unbelief start to get squeezed out. Because the promises of God and His Word don't ring true in our heart. They just seem distant and shallow and empty. And it's in those moments they're distant and shallow and empty because we aren't believing the character of God. We're not believing what He has said in the midst of that promise. In the midst of that difficulty, we're not believing the promise. We need to be anchored in these particular promises and see what they are so that we can have the endurance we need to have to persevere through those difficulties. We need to understand these particular promises he has for us because it is very easy for us to doubt in the midst because our emotions are saying one thing and the objective truth of God is saying something completely different. The emotions which we live with, which we experience, which to us seems to be reality and true, and there is, that seems to be perfect, it can't lie to us, becomes more valuable than the objective word of God from a creator who cannot lie, who cannot mislead, who has spoken truth to us. It's in those moments it's hard for us to take our fears our doubts and our worries and bring them under the truth. What I love is this, that God will regularly take us into persecutions, sufferings, and difficulties in order to not only cause us to endure, but also to see the riches of His grace and to be 
dependent upon him in faith. To be entirely dependent upon him. In these verses, again, it's interesting thinking about this particular idea of how God uses suffering and difficulty. Because that's what he's been bringing out in our context. In Romans 8, verse 18, when he said there, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. And creation suffers, we ourselves suffer, we're under great difficulties. The Spirit of God himself is groaning too in our own weaknesses. There is suffering all around and God uses that suffering to sanctify us and to draw us closer to himself. Cause us to be wholly dependent upon him. There's a Baptist minister by the name of John Rippon who was pastor for 63 years. Faithful man of God. He was actually the predecessor to another pastor. You might, know, might have heard of him, Charles Spurgeon. The predecessor to Spurgeon. He had ministered in the Metropolitan Tabernacle before Spurgeon, laying the foundation for that church that Spurgeon would take and minister to. But he wrote a hymn, and the hymn is entitled, How Firm a Foundation. And the lyrics of that hymn demonstrate this rich principle right here. Listen to these words. You know them well. I think we sang it just last week. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Just in that opening line there, he's saying, Saints, listen carefully. God has spoken and given you everything you need. You have this firm foundation through the spoken word of God that he has given you exactly what you need. He goes on, Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The constant reminder in that, that refrain there is the promises of God. Fear not, I'm there, I'm strengthening you, I, I'm leading you, and I am protecting you by my powerful hand, and I am righteous. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Again, even in this hymn here, as he is pointing out to us, as we sing and reflect on the words, it isn't that God is taking us outside of the difficulty, he is taking us through those difficulties, and in the midst of that difficulty, he is there sanctifying us through it, whatever that deepest distress is. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. There is a good purpose in the suffering the hymn writer, Mr. Ridden, describes. It is there to sanctify us. I love this line. We don't sing this refrain very much, but listen. He says this, even down to old age, all my people shall prove. My sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. The riches of that truth that throughout as the believer continues to endure through all of their life, as they grow old, they are going to testify of this truth. God is protecting his people. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. These hymns remind us of these rich promises that God has made in his word. He will not forsake us in the midst of our suffering and difficulty. 
Whatever our emotions say at the moment, whatever the the trial around us is stating, God has promised that he does not forsake. And that's exactly what is proclaimed to us here in Romans 8. Notice Romans 8, 28 through 30, or 31 through 39. Notice what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just the height of this glorious passage teaches us this marvelous truth. That whatever difficulty you're heading into, whatever the expression of suffering, you cannot be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the truth for us, or the difficulty for us in the midst of this promise, is believing this promise in our suffering. That's where the test comes for us, to believe this promise. And so as we work our way through this marvelous text, I want to anchor our thoughts in this rich promise. So when the lies are tempted to prevail upon us, when they're tempted to overwhelm us, when we're tempted to believe the earthly things are more powerful than the hand of our God, we are anchored back into these marvelous truths. The first argument here... What Paul does in these verses, from verse 31 through 39, is this. He anticipates a series of arguments that somebody might make to say, well, your salvation isn't as secure as you think it is. Your gospel isn't as secure as you think it is. Your faith isn't as secure as you think it is. And there might be a series of of arguments to kind of discredit the gospel of God, to discredit the work of God, maybe even some arguments that we might be tempted to believe in our own heart. Paul anticipates those arguments from verse 31 to 39, and he responds to them. We'll look to the first argument this morning, and it's seen there in verse 31. Notice it says this, What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, Who is against us? Verse 31. The first argument might be this. There's somebody out there that will get in the way of our salvation. There's a person, somebody. Word tis there, t could be he, who, or what. The idea that there is something, somebody out there that is going to get in the way of They're going to get in the way and they're going to take away your salvation. They're going to come in with an accusation. They're going to come in with something and they are going to to separate God's love from you. Somehow that they might come along and come with a new set of information and explain it to God and God's going to change his mind about his love for you. That's the idea. This might come to a surprise for some of you, but I'm not everybody's favorite person. I don't know. I know that's hard to believe, but there are times someone doesn't exactly like me. 
and don't care for my existence, and they like to post about that. And in the midst of that, it'd be in the moment, the fear would come up in my own heart. Is this true? Is this true about me? What, are, what would others think? If others read that, and if others went through that post, and others considered the details, what would that say about me? Oh, certainly fear could come welling up in the heart, and before you know it, you were secretly walking around trying to say, well, did you hear the lie? Did, did you believe that too? Did, and you're going on an investigation because your heart's filled with fear and uncertainty. How will others perceive me? What if others hear about this? What if my friends hear about this? What if my mentors hear about this? What if other, the whole church hears about this? Fears come welling up within. The narrative can misrepresent. What if all the voices started to say these things? What if there's truth in this? All of the uncertainty comes flooding into our heart and mind in the midst of that, and it can become scary. Imagine as yourself in the place of teaching, and as you are teaching truth, you're hated because you teach the truth. Imagine that those as they are teaching the truth, like our Lord who was teaching, had increasing bitterness from the religious leaders of the time. And as he is teaching, they become uh, bitter at him and they're quibbling over every word he said. They start to interpret every one of your looks. They start to read into every word said and every word not said. They start to interpret your life through that lens of bitterness. They start to hate you. They start to get, they start to oppose everything you pursue. They secretly wish that you were knocked down a little bit so they can be elevated a little bit. They long for your failure. They long for your demise. They long for you to be harmed in some way. They long for you to be discredited that they can be exalted. Spurgeon lived under this. I couldn't imagine the kind of difficulty Spurgeon lived through. In his early years at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, after he took the pulpit as a really a young man, his early 20s, he was mocked every Monday. He preached Sunday, and then the papers just destroyed him the next day. They called him a buffoon, They mocked him because he spoke in the commoner's language. They mocked the way he dressed. They mocked his youth. There was one particular Sunday that Spurgeon, in the midst of the preaching, had taken out a polka-dotted handkerchief and was waving it around. The next week, they had then drawn up this picture, cartoon character of him in the paper, mocking him. Imagine that each Sunday, if you preached, the very next day it was just mockery. The very next week in the papers, is spread around. What would cause a man to continue to endure in the midst of that difficulty and criticism? Imagine again, if it's not just one voice speaking against you, but many voices speaking against you, many writers keeping it all hostile, all opposed. In the midst of that, where would Spurgeon fix his attention in the midst of that? He can only fix his attention on his God. Now, it's interesting in this. When you think about God's evaluation of us and our critics' evaluation of us, there's one fundamental difference. Certainly, a critic can spot an error just like God could spot an error. Certainly, a critic may have an element of truth just as God can see us perfectly and know our hearts. No one ministering the truth is saying of themselves, we're perfect, we have no sin, we've done nothing wrong, so everything we do is right. No one's saying that. What's the difference between God's evaluation of a person and a critic's evaluation of a person? It is this, God seeks to... Conform us into the image of his son the critic seeks to destroy. The question would be, when somebody is coming against you seeking to destroy you, you might believe that they would take you away from the love of God. You might believe in the midst of that moment that I'm not even worthy to be saved, not even worthy to be rescued. Everything they say is right. 
I am weak. I am a sinner. I am not all that I ought to be. And while the critic wants his pound of flesh, Christ is, or God is working for the purpose that he stated back in verse 29. We have been, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God is working to make us into the image of Christ. Who can separate us? Then Paul says then here, who will separate us from the love of God? While all those things are happening, what argument could possibly be brought up that would take you away from this marvelous truth that God is conforming us into the image of his son, that God has shed his love upon us? There's no argument. It's nothing. Who will separate us from the love of God? No enemy could rise up. No voice can rise up and change God's mind. Certainly, there's nothing that any enemy could say about us that God does not already know perfectly and know even more about. I like to, again, as Virgin also said, my enemies have said a lot of things about me, but they don't know the the depths of my heart. They don't know. And if they knew all of that, they they would know all the other areas that they could add to the complaint. Indeed, there is a, a sense in this. Who, if God is for us, there at the end of verse 31, who is against us? You know, it is interesting in the midst of that. It tells us this truth. We ultimately look for one's assessment, God's assessment. We want God's assessment. We want his evaluation, his measure his evaluation of our life. He is the one who measures and, and evaluates. And here the great promise is this, that if he is for us, there are none who could oppose. Indeed, we see this. We've seen this in so many different ways. As the kingdom of darkness has tried to prevail, tried to snuff out the work of God, God's ways have continued to persist and go forward, continue to overcome, continue to conquer, not to be held back in any way. So that, again, we can rejoice that whatever the difficulties come, God is able to deliver and rescue, and we just don't know the ways in which he is going to rescue And while that truth is there, Paul decides, okay, he's going to prove this truth to us in verse 32. No one, no individual could come and thwart the plan of God. Why is that? Well, because verse 32. Because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The first kind of truth that Paul states here, if God did the biggest thing, the greatest thing of giving his son, why would he not do this little thing over here and deliver and protect? This is the argument from the greater to the lesser. That it is, if God has done the most impossible thing, the unthinkable thing, the thing of sending his own son, the thing he didn't have to do, but he did for for the vindication of his own righteousness and glory. If he did the impossible thing, would he not do the little thing and deliver and protect? Oh, absolutely. I mean, think about this, friends. Put it in perspective. If Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven and took on the limitations here on earth, and if he suffered like a servant on earth, and if he suffered the limitations of humanity, having given up the independent exercise of his divine prerogatives and limited himself to the limitations of humanity while living on earth, and if he was rejected by men, and if he was forsaken, and if he was abandoned by his own friends, and even turned over by a traitor among him, And if he was mistreated and he was mocked and he was mistried and he was persecuted and he was slandered and if he was beaten and hung on a cross and if he was forsaken by his own father, 
And he did all of that because he loved his people and he laid down his life for them and he rescued us and we are now brought to God through Jesus Christ. What else is left for God to do? What else must he do? He's done the impossible. He's redeemed us. How would God then abandon us when he's already done the most amazing work? The invaluable work. He rescued us, as Paul states there. He didn't spare his own son. He delivered, he delivered him over for us all. Gave Jesus Christ so that we would be justified. As Romans 5, 8, and 9, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, we've been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He has delivered us through Christ. Christ has taken on the worst. So if, again, God has set his love upon us and has sent his son, why would he not complete this work? Why would he then just abandon us mid-course, somewhere along the way, as soon as one person came up or multiple people came up and opposed us? Why would God just say, I'm tired now. Just enough is enough. This is too much for me. I mean, to do that, the father would then have to deny his son. He would have to say, yeah, you did this big work here, but I'm just tired of it. He would have to deny his love for the son, yeah, you did this great work, and I appreciated it, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm tired of this person. The father would have to turn from what he values. The father himself would have to change. I would sooner imagine that man could jump to the moon in his own strength than God would change his love towards one of his elect. That's comforting for us. In this passage, as Paul draws our attention to this rich truth, God is for us. Who can be against us? How do we know he's for us? Because he sent his son to, del- to deliver us. And then this truth that comes at the end of verse 32, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How will he not lavish us? If he has given us the Son and the Son has delivered us, how will God not also lavish us richly? Demonstrate the riches of his love continually towards us. How will God, if he has done the impossible, even though the enemies rise up, even though somebody comes and opposes, even though wicked oppose righteousness, how God won't abandon. He will freely give us all things. Now, I thought about this passage and think there are so many implications in this. I just want to kind of just wrap up the message this morning in the final few minutes we have, just thinking about the implications of this rich truth. Nobody can stand up and oppose the purposes of God. Nobody bringing new charges, new accusations, new threats, new whatever, and change the will of God. For as, again, verse 29 through 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. This unbreakable chain of salvation is not going to be thwarted because God's love has been poured out upon us through the work of Jesus Christ. So what implications will we have in this truth? Well, I have four for you to think through. The first is this. When we are caught up in the confusion and difficulties of persecution and suffering, and when nothing makes sense, in those moments we need to fix our eyes on God and his glory. We need to fix our eyes on the God and his promises. When everything around us seems uncertain, when everything seems difficult, when everything seems like it is uh, um, confused, 
It's in those moments we anchor ourselves in the marvelous promises of God. This is where, again, our sound theology delivers us because we go back to the promises of God and the work of God and we are confident in God who cannot lie. He says he's for us, that we know that he's at work. We know whatever he's doing, that he's taking us through this path for a good work. And he's not going to lead us astray. And he's not going to mislead us. And he's not going to mistreat us. Whatever the difficulty, and through whomever that difficulty comes, even a, a, a beloved person, whoever brings this, we know that God is marvelously working. He's not going to harm us in the way. He will preserve us and protect us through it all. And he will get us to the end. So that's the first implication. The second implication is this. As we fix our eyes on God and we fix our eyes on his promises, the second implication for us is that we are to press on in endurance. We should endure through the persecutions and sufferings, endure through the hard times and trials, because, again, if God is for us, then who could stop us? I love this uh, kind of idea in, in the kind of illustration of sports. Like You can see in sports when things are happening in a game where a team gets a kind of confidence that they think, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, in fact, tell you exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it anyways, and I'm going to overcome. There's that kind of idea here. I know in Christ what God has called me to do, and I'm going to do it irrespective of what I see. This is what God has called me to do. It's an endurance. That's the idea here. If this promise is true that God is on my side, God is for me, God is for his elect, for his chosen people, and if I know that I am his elect, how would I know that? Because I love him, I love his purposes and his ways, I want to honor him in my life, and I see his marvelous work, and I believe his message, then I know that he is for me, and that he is going to accomplish his good purposes. And so we press on in endurance through the difficulties. I'm not looking for escape. I'm looking to go through. Thirdly, the marvelous promise, marvelous implication of this text would be this. It not only emphasizes that we are protected from, by God, but it also emphasizes that we are richly blessed by God. Again, notice the end of verse 32, because God could have stopped there at the, at the, but delivered him over for us all. Could have stopped there, didn't have to add that last phrase. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You could have just talked about what he's done in Christ and delivering us from the wrath of God and protected us for salvation. You could have just stopped there, but Paul then adds this phrase that God will freely give us all things. God will richly pour out his blessing upon us. And he does. He does regularly. I want to, from this, just make an observation and what I'm seeing around us today, I've had a bunch of people text me this week and call, ask emails and say, oh, Pastor, what's happening in Asbury? What's going on with this revival? What's taking place? Is this a true work of God? Is this uh, something that God is moving, God is doing? Is this something we should be looking for? Should we be selling our house right now and moving out there? Do I need to be buying a plane ticket? Do I need to be right in the middle of that? Do I need to be tapping into the, to the video feed? What do, do, where should we be, Pastor? What should happen? I thought it interesting in this principle here. Does God just pour out his riches one time, every once in a while, somewhere? Or is God regularly demonstrating the riches of his grace to his people? Well, I think by implication on this passage is this. If he's given out his son and laid down his son, he is also freely, regularly giving us all things. So I want, what I want to view is happening right now. Well, 
what I've said to all those individuals, and now I can say to you corporately, so you don't have to text me. I can just say, get the tape, get the download. Here is what we look for. Are the fruits of First John, are the tests of First John being fulfilled there? Do they love holiness? Do they love righteousness? Do they confess sin? Are they abiding in Christ? Are they abiding in the apostles' teaching? Are they growing with an increasing love for the Lord Jesus Christ? This is how you measure any work, where any church, any work, is it of God? Does it fit the tests of the Scripture? Is there an increasing love for truth and an appetite for the, the message of the apostles? Because if they, 1 John chapter 4, if they've abandoned the message of the apostles, they departed from us and they are not of us. They must be preaching sound doctrine. They must be teaching truth. They must be walking according to the message of the apostles. They must be walking in holiness. They must be demonstrating love. If those things are happening, we can rejoice. And the second test, I would say, is wait. Wait and see. Watch. How long would we watch? Well, I think um, we could go with Paul's life. We can wait 14 years. I like the 10-year number. So in 10 to 14 years, let's talk about it, all right? In 10 to 14 years, text me, ask me about it, and then at that time, we'll go back and evaluate it. Is this of God? I mean, Jesus had to wait nearly 30 years before he began his earthly ministry. What's 10 years for this? But that's what it takes for us to wait. Why? Well, because right now I know this. God is richly, freely giving us all things even right now. We're seeing conversions. We're seeing people grow in the understanding of God's word. We are seeing people grow in holiness. We are confessing sin and we are repenting. We are growing in our understanding of the truth. We are increasing in sound doctrine. We are replicating in discipleship. We are doing all the things that God has freely said he will do in his midst and it's happening right here. You don't have to buy a plane ticket for it. You just have to show up on Sunday and Wednesday and Saturday and Thursday and every other day that the church is gathering together and meeting because those are the expressions of God's grace pouring out right now. Right now. I don't have to go anywhere else for it. It's funny. Watching over the years, various fads come up. And I'm just thinking this quick did a summary this week. What are all the different ways fads that have come up in my lifetime as a Christian? And I've gone through the prayer of Jabez. How many, of that, how many of you are praying for that right now? That's a fad, dead. Uh, left Behind series. You might use that to hold up your couch now. You're not reading it anymore. Experiencing God. Young, restless, and reformed. Remember when people like Mark Driscoll, Rob Bell, pastors like Joshua Harris told us all the church is dead. Where are they? Where's Rob Bell now? It's not in a pulpit. Where's Joshua Harris anymore? He's not in a marriage anymore, nor in a pulpit. So many people to tell us what the church ought to be, ought to just turn back to the word of God and be what God has said to be. Because of this very thing right here. If God is for us, why would we go anywhere else? If God is for us, what else do we need? If God is for us, why would we listen to any other message? For God is for us indeed, and he freely gives us all things. One more implication, and then we'll close. Fourth implication of this marvelous passage is this. This truth kills fear. It just kills fear. There's nothing to fear, be fearful about. Nothing to fear. Nothing to be worried about. There's nothing that we our, our hearts need to be consumed over because it's God's assessment, it's God's grace, it's God's mercy we look for, and he cares for us in the best ways. So that when we are tempted to think that someone is going to harm us and someone is going to mislead us and somebody is going to discredit us and somebody is going to take away and influence what we wish to have, if somebody is going to do something that is going to limit, we know this, they cannot go further than what God would want them to do and to go. 
And certainly, if it is our moment to die, it is exactly what the Lord wanted. And if it's that time he wanted to deliver us, we know that he has delivered Daniel and his friends. We know that he delivered them through fires and through the, through the lions. We know that God is able to deliver in miraculous ways if that's indeed what he wants to do. And we can certainly see even when we are mistreated, the Lord is able to take that mistreatment and bring out the good for us. So indeed, a promise like this just absolutely crucifies fear. Because if we believe these promises, then there's no one, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God. Well, that's a start, friends. We got a couple more lies that Paul exposes here. But I pray for us, the confidence will be this, that when we're in the midst of those difficulties, we are going to fix our eyes on the promises of God. We're going to trust in his word we're going to trust in his ways and we're going to endure through those difficulties because God is going to sanctify us and grow us and demonstrate the riches of his love. And we're not setting our hope on our personal comfort. We're setting our hope on the glory of God, of which, again, as I've been stating through this last few weeks, it might be temporary suffering, but there's eternal joy to come. And so while we enjoy some joy now and we're thankful for God's promises, the time is coming where there's going to be eternal joy that's unshakable. So we keep pressing and enduring, trusting these things. Let's go before God. Father, thank you for the riches of your word. Thank you for the marvelous promises. For indeed, in these promises, we are painfully aware of our own limitations, our own failures. We deserve none of this. We earned none of it. That you would lavish us with this kind of grace and mercy is just overwhelming to us. So may it produce within us gratitude. May it produce within us faith, a greater confidence, a greater joy for your working a greater appreciation for your truth, a greater awareness that is ultimately your assessment that is the best and truest assessments, and we look to you to measure us. And indeed, Father, we pray that we become better reflections of your marvelous love so that anyone who would look upon us in the midst of our circumstances would see the love of God poured out among us. And we thank you, Father, for those moments in which we taste and experience the riches of your love. And we, we see your good hand and we feel near to you. And in those moments when we are under the burden and under the press, when we're stretched in every direction and we are despairing, may it be in those moments that we cast our anxieties upon you, resting in your good hand, rejoicing that we are running the race, not surprised by the pressures or difficulties, but even rejoicing, anticipating what is to come. So continue to do your good work in us as we anchor our hearts and thoughts and minds in the riches of your truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.